The title of this evening's talk is Wise Concentration. And beginning the talk with three uh, Pali words, sila, samadhi, panya, translated as morality or virtue, sila, concentration, samadhi, and wisdom or insight, panya. Over his 45 years of teaching, the Buddha many, many times spoke about these three particular aspects of mind as being the, as being the essential and indispensable basis of his own practice. Virtue, concentration, and insight, or morality, concentration, and wisdom. These form the three branches of mental development that are essential to all Buddhist practice. The development and the combination of the first two of these qualities or capacities of heart, of mind, are what lead one into the pasana or the deeply penetrative understanding that comes through the direct meditative experience of the three liberating insights, that of anicca, the impermanency of all mental and physical phenomena, dukkha, the essential unsatisfactoriness of all worldly mental and physical occurrences, and the impersonality of all of the material and mental phenomena of existence. These are the three profound insights that lead one on towards liberation. In the Buddha's words, as he often did, he starts with a question and then goes on to answer it himself. So the question that he asks in relationship to this evening's talk, if concentration, samadhi, is developed, what profit does it bring? And he answers the question by saying, the mind is developed. If the mind is developed, he goes on to say, what profit does it bring? And he responds to his own question, all lust is abandoned. And then he goes on, if insight is developed, what profit does it bring? And the answer he gives is, wisdom is developed. And he says, if wisdom is developed, what profit does it bring? And he answers this saying, all ignorance is abandoned. So concentration, samadhi, concentration meditation, and vipassana, insight meditation. In particular, alternating sequences are developed throughout our practice. And all of this rests 
on the essential foundation of the gradual process of purification that comes about through the practice, the process, and the understanding that blossoms through our exploration of sila with its underlying principle of non-harming. As the teachings and practices of sila deepen and mature within us, and we come to understand through our own very direct experience what brings happiness and contentment and ease on the deepest level, and what brings suffering and confusion, what brings dis-ease, we come to understand this more and more deeply and through our direct own experience. Very intimately connected to the understanding that the practice of sila affords us are our habits of attraction, aversion, worry, anxiety, fear, and the identification with these states. These habits of mind are the primary mental and physical phenomena that create suffering and lead to what we could call rebirth over and over again in this here and now momentary round of worldly suffering in Pali called samsara. These habits of mind also keep us from developing a deep uh, uh, and further purifying concentration, a deep and further purifying samadhi. And these habits of mind keep us from our primary goal, our main goal, that of recognizing the nature of things, recognizing ultimate reality, and thus keep us from awakening keep us from enlightenment. The true nature of things, ultimate reality, is the principle that all mental and physical phenomena, people, mountains, galaxies, California, Mm -hmm. Toronto, Synergy Ranch, the Amtrak train system, etc., are understood, are regarded as being without substantial sustaining essence, without any separate, solid self-identity. In order to see the true nature of existing phenomena, We need to purify the mental cloudiness, part the veil, untangle the tangle that keeps us from seeing it. And this occurs via the practices of sila, samadhi, and panya. The Buddha taught, speaking directly from his own process and experience, that in his words, It's owing to the development of virtue, concentration, and wisdom, insight, that enlightenment has been fully realized. (laughs) 
in order for us to learn how to properly apply these three active forces of purification, virtue, concentration, and wisdom, we need to learn directly from our own experience. And often, uh, as you are coming to, certainly coming to know, uh, often from some of our most difficult experiences, or what we might deem to be our mistakes, as well as learning from some of our quieter and subtler experiences. We could say that this, that uh, purification is synonymous with this act of learning. And so this evening, taking a look at the active force of samadhi, the active force of concentration, the unperturbed, peaceful, and lucid state of mind attained by the practice and the process of strong mental concentration. The process of gathering in, gathering together the energy, the potentially powerful energy of the mind, which is ordinarily quite dispersed. We could say that the initial act of concentration is that of reining the mind in from its myriad distractions and learning how to focus it by coming back again and again and again to the simple present so that our mental and physical energy isn't being used up or usurped in unconscious and unskillful ways. The Visuddhimagga, the profoundly detailed Buddhist treatise on the process of purification, uses a number of very graphic metaphors to describe the process of the act of concentration. And I, uh, as you have learned probably, like graphic metaphors as a way of explaining the teachings. So I'd like to share a few of these for you, with you. Here's one. The bee follows up the scent of a flower, then dives towards the flower, stops and buzzes above it, getting to know it, we could say, before diving into it, before maybe absorbing into it. A metaphor for preliminary, access and absorption concentration. Another metaphor offered uh, in the Visuddhimagga that I particularly related to because of my own experience in um, creating pottery is this. A lump of clay sits on a spinning potter's wheel. Centering the clay, the potter brings both hands directly onto the clay, holding, staying there with a strong and relaxed, focused attention of body and mind. Staying, sustaining attention, sustaining energy, totally undistracted as the clay is centered on the wheel. Then the potter, with a continuing focus of attention, with one hand directly on the clay, steadily holding and supporting the clay, 
The other hand also continues to sustain contact with the clay, which is the object of attention. But the other hand is moving back and forth, up and down, informing the clay at the same time as being informed by it, as a bowl forms. So quite a graphic and visceral metaphor for the development and the process of concentration with the, with the possibility of the mind, the heart, moving into deeper states of samadhi, maybe the deeper states of jhana. The power of a clear, relaxed, focused mind a concentrated mind. A concentrated mind brings together and stimulates or re-stimulates itself again and again. Re-stimulates the energy and the effort needed for the next moment of continuing the process of its own development. We could say that a concentrated mind feeds itself strengthening its ability to stay present with whatever the object of attention is and not attach itself to other things. It's just this at this moment. It's just where it is, pure, clean, and calm. Quite an energizing, refreshing, and often beautiful experience. Because our exploration this evening is primarily devoted to the purifying and we could say beautiful current of samadhi concentration, I think it would be um, helpful to, uh, for us to explore and learn a bit more about the basis, the process, and the fruits of concentration. The wholesome states of, that make up concentration, that are aspects of concentration, calm, joy, tranquility, happiness, and peace, along with the deeper states of concentration called jhana, cannot grow when the unwholesome states of mind of attachment, aversion, sleepiness, agitation, worry, and doubt are occurring. Seeing and understanding the difference between wholesome states of mind and unwholesome states of mind is essential for the development and blossoming of concentration. So for instance, if you try to concentrate on a meditation subject, on some meditation subject, maybe such as the breath, and you're anxious or worried uh, during the process. This will prevent you from being calm and joyful. Worry enslaves us if we're identified with it, if we're caught in it and identified with it. So with the practice of concentration, one needs to be willing to let go of thought, to not be seduced into thoughts. One needs to be willing to cut through thoughts, so to say. Even thoughts that might seem so important in the moment. Clarity of attention and seeing 
knowing when the attention gets muddled or lost in something other than what is intended is really the first and maybe the most important and maybe the most difficult step of developing concentration, of the practice of concentration. The mind can get lost in myriad mundane thoughts and actions thinking that whatever it is, is really very important. As I'm sure you are discovering. (laughs) And I had such an experience uh, during a three-month concentration, three-month jhana retreat, that I sat with uh, Pawak Saidao. So just to share a little bit of this uh, as an example. For the first week or so of the retreat, each day after lunch, uh, I would make myself a a quote-unquote fancy cup of tea. (laughs) So taking two or three uh, loose teas and mixing them together in a tea ball. A seemingly very important and seemingly very necessary treat that I needed, (laughs) that I wanted. After about a week of doing this, I noticed a box of tea bags uh, of one of the same kinds of a tea, loose teas, uh, that was in my mix. And it was sitting on the counter right in front of me under all the jars of the loose tea. And it had been sitting there every day. But I hadn't noticed it. I hadn't paid any attention to it up until this one day. And the thought came in, do I really need this? Is all this fancy tea preparation and uh, seeming need, is this really important? Uh, And no, came the answer. It's not at all important. It's uh, merely a habitual distraction. So I made a simple cup of tea with the tea bag. It was good enough, and I even enjoyed it. What happened... After this is what was really important. Quite spontaneously, at times throughout the rest of the uh, three-month retreat, this question, is this really important, would come up in relationship to various mundane actions, in relationship to various thoughts, various thought patterns, and the answer almost always, if not pretty much 100% of the time, quite clearly and more and more obviously was no. It's not important. And I would just simply let go of whatever it was at that point. It still comes up fairly often. And it's helpful. The development of a wholesome concentration requires of us that we have insight of some depth and a growing interest and understanding regarding the difference between wholesome and unwholesome states of mind. And one of the most wonderful and amazing fruits that inevitably occurs through the process of developing concentration is that the heart and the mind are continually being purified from the various permutations of greed, aversion, lethargy, restlessness, and doubt 
as concentration develops. Classically, the development of concentration and and jhana concentration is described as the purification of the mind. Samadhi, or the development of calm and concentration, seriously weakens all the hindrances, seriously weakens the unwholesome states of mind. When calm, joy, tranquility, happiness or bliss as it's sometimes called, peace and equanimity, the fruits of concentration practice, when they're clearly manifest, the hindrances, unwholesome mind states are temporarily completely eliminated, as well as profoundly weakened in the long term, particularly as one's concentration develops and deepens, and even more specifically so if one has the inclination towards attaining the deeper states of concentration, jhana, which isn't everyone's inclination. So taking a bit of a look now at the different factors of concentration, deep concentration, how they quite specifically address different states of mind and body that hinder the development of concentration and that hinder the development of the unfolding of insight. To begin with, overall calm and the development of a more tranquil body and mind is an antidote for feeling perturbed. Quite obvious. Calm and tranquility free the mind, the heart, from impurities and inner obstacles, giving the mind, in fact, a greater penetrative strength. The mental state Uh, and the action of initially applying the mind, aiming and applying the attention again and again to the object, vitaka or vitaka in Pali. Establishing the mind on the object, maybe such as the breath or on maybe another object, this eliminates dullness, eliminates sleepiness, stiffness. Sustaining application of the mind, a continuous attention on the object, whatever the object may be, breath or some other object. This is called vichara in Pali. This eliminates uncertainty. It eliminates doubt. The deeply concentrated state of joyful zest, a bright happiness, elation in the mind, resulting from the purity of mind, the purity of heart. This is piti in Pali. This brings a delighted interest, a delighted interest in and liking for the object of attention. Again, such as the breath or another object. And so inhibits all forms of ill will. And the deeply concentrated state of bliss contentment, sweet happiness, sukha in Pali, which actually is not 
a, a pleasant bodily feeling, but uh, a blissful, contented mental experience. This eliminates restlessness, agitation, eliminates regret and worry. And lastly, the steady, undistracted attention of one-pointed focus of concentration, of a deepening or deep concentration, ikagata in Pali. This brings an equanimous feeling and eliminates sensuous desire for anything. Now, as I mentioned, all of these, this process happens and it is the complete temporary elimination of these uh, afflictive states of mind. And it also weakens all of the uh, afflictive or distracting um, uh, states of mind, unwholesome states of mind. As samadhi or concentration practice develops and moves along, and the imperfections, the states that corrupt the natural purity of the mind, the natural purity of the heart, when at least some of the imperfections have been very clearly let go, abandoned, and relinquished. At that time, one really truly knows and gains a much fuller and deeper confidence in and connection to one's own practice, as you've all tasted to some degree. When this confidence arises, and the mind and heart often, when the, when the confidence arises, the mind and the heart often can experience a great inspiration, enthusiasm, and an appreciation connected to the Buddha, to the Dhamma, the teachings of the truth, and the Sangha, the community of beings who have in the past and are currently in the present practicing and teaching the Dhamma. As awakening beings, when we begin to directly experience and know ourselves as purified of unwholesome states, when we directly experience and know ourselves as at least partially liberated from them, a great and wholesome gladness and gratitude is born in us. With the blossoming and the maturing of this gladness, a joyful zest and a taste of elation, which is sometimes described as rapture, is born in us. With this joy and the knowing of it, without attachment in those moments, without identification in those moments, the body eventually becomes quite tranquil. With the maturing of tranquility, both the more overt and the subtle bodily and mental disturbances that are connected with gladness and joy are removed they disappear in the calm and quiet. They disappear in the serene pleasure of tranquility. When we experience tranquility, we feel pleasure. When pleasure is felt without any attachment, 
without any identification in those moments, the mind is then prepared for deepened concentration. And on it goes. And at this point, the mind and heart are very strong. The nature of concentration is threefold. Or in other words, there are three types or three levels, we could say, of concentration that can develop and serve our practice, serve our insight practice. The first of these is what's called momentary concentration. This is the development and the growing maturation of one's ability to focus on one object after another. The development of our capacity to clearly connect with one object, then another object, then another object, one by one by one, and ongoing, moment by moment. The cultivation of one's capacity for momentary concentration is essential for insight practice. The second type or level, so to say, of concentration is called access concentration. And this is a very deep and powerful concentration that occurs just before one moves into absorption or jhana concentration and can be re-accessed and used for insight practice upon coming out of jhana. Access concentration is often experienced as similar to the intensity and depth of jhana concentration, but it's not. It's not an absorbed concentration. It doesn't stay focused on one object at, at the exclusion of other objects, as does jhana. The mind is malleable with excess concentration. It's able to move from object to object to object even though it contains close to the same intensity of the deeply absorbed states of jhana. So from this perspective, excess concentration can be a very helpful and useful uh, uh, aspect of concentration in the unfolding of insight practice. The third type or level of concentration is jhana concentration. And this is a concentrated mind that completely absorbs into one object at the exclusion of all other objects. When the mind is absorbed in this way, it's not possible for the mind to do anything else at that time. And as I've already mentioned, during that time, the mind is temporarily totally purified of all unwholesome mind states, while at the same time unwholesome states of mind and body are profoundly weakened in the long run, but not eliminated, not completely eliminated. It's only through vipassana, insight practice, that unwholesome or afflictive states of mind are totally eliminated. 
the development of samadhi, the development of concentration, will quite naturally take place in our vipassana practice, particularly momentary concentration, especially when we begin to meet all the various body-mind phenomena with less and less clinging, less attachment, less and less identification, self-identification. The development of jhana and the just prior access concentration takes a very specific and concerted effort that's really not everyone's inclination or interest and actually not absolutely necessary for a profound and liberating vipassana practice to unfold. As concentration develops, slowly we gain the wisdom and the concentration to allow ourselves to wholeheartedly meet experience with no self, no me, no I am, no identification, self-identification, while at the same time being clearly present and mindfully aware of what is taking place, but with no pondering, no thinking about what is occurring. In light of this, I'd like to uh, share a simple and maybe hopefully potentially illuminating story with you about two significant times and aspects of the Buddha's life. After six years of engaging in extreme ascetic practices and finding that, in fact, they weren't bringing the liberation of mind, the liberation of heart that he was seeking, it's said that the Bodhisattva, Siddhartha Gautama, who was to become a Buddha, our Buddha, we could say, because there were other Buddhas before him, asked himself, could, this, could there be another path to enlightenment? In reflection with this inner questioning, uh, an image, the memory of a particular experience from his boyhood appeared to Siddhartha Gautama. Gautama. He remembered a particular spring day when he was a boy of six. That morning his father had taken him to the spring plowing festival, a time each year when the men in the community, rich and poor alike, came together for a day of plowing up the earth, an annual ritual making, uh, marking the beginning of spring, of the spring planting season. Young Siddhartha, this young boy, six-year-old boy, sat comfortably and quietly under a sweet-smelling rose apple tree, observing the scene unfolding before him with a very open, alert, and unfettered attention that children sometimes give to things. Nothing really on his mind. In those moments of not wanting or fearing anything, he was aware of the earth breaking open in even wave-like furrows, noticing the heat shimmering up off the freshly opened soil. 
He was aware of the shining on the sweating faces and the straining bodies of the men and the oxen and noticed the flash and sparkling sunlight coming off the bronze harnesses and dark horns of the oxen. He felt the plodding rhythm of the oxen's hooves and cowbells rolling on and on and on amidst the strong, sharp shouts of the men. He also clearly heard the beautiful sound of birdsong, as well as the shrill cries of the birds as they dove and pecked and devoured the swarming insects and grubs and worms and broken bodies of the mice left out on the upturned earth. All of this laboring, devouring, struggling, suffering, and dying, endlessly going on beneath and right along with the gaiety, joy, and beauty of that spring festival day. All of this entered into young Siddhartha's heart and mind as he sat alone, clearly focused and deeply relaxed under the tree, open-heartedly experiencing the scene before him, and in his heart, in his mind, finding no resistance, no tension, no inner conflict, nothing to add, nothing to take away, no picking, no choosing. As he sat quite still and secluded, secluded from sensual pleasures, secluded from unwholesome states of mind, taking this all in without prejudice or attachment, he experienced a a sweet pleasure, a happiness, that was not born out of desire for or clinging to anything. And in his young mind, a deep intuitive understanding was seeded. S-E-E-D-E-D. As a young man, in remembering this experience, the thought occurred, Could that be the path to enlightenment? And it's said that following on the memory of this joyful, tranquil, tranquil and mindful experience from his childhood, the Bodhisattva became filled with energy and sureness that in fact this was the path to liberation and resolved to sit quietly and press forward in deep meditation until he reached understanding until he reached true freedom. This was a turning point for the Buddha to be in his quest for awakening, in his quest for enlightenment. This was a turning point and a change in his relationship to suffering and his evaluation of pleasure. At that most important point of turning in his quest for liberation, Siddhartha realized that the confusion, the misunderstanding, the delusion, the greed, anger, anguish and hatred, 
all of the dark and afflictive states of mind wouldn't be and in fact couldn't be purified, banished, released let go of or relinquished by creating hardships for oneself and then putting up with or living, trying to live through or toughing it out in relationship to these self-inflicted hardships or by trying very hard to let go of or trying to lose one's self in hardships. And if you consider your own life, how many times in small, even in tiny ways, or possibly even in extreme ways, have you, out of ignorance, out of delusion, out of misunderstanding, been attracted to and chosen to engage in mental fantasies or particular situations or activities or relationships that in fact created hardship in your life and maybe even extreme hardship at times in your own way doing just what the Buddha did and thinking just as he did that this would bring a sustaining joy happiness and ease into your life. How many times have you done this? Potentially a certain kind of strength might be gained. But the light at the end of the tunnel, the light of awakening, can never be seen, felt, or known through this way. As a young man, in remembering his childhood experience, Siddhartha realized that pleasure was no longer to be feared and banished through the practice of extreme austerities. That it would never bring a sustaining, that this would never bring a sustaining sense of well-being. He understood that when pleasure is born internally, within a mind, within a heart that is secluded, that's free from mental and bodily hindrances, the mental and bodily hindrances of lethargy, restlessness, greed, and clinging, free from the various permutations of aversion, confusion, or doubt. He understood that when pleasure is born of seclusion, clear, concentrated presence and detachment, that it's not only okay, but that it's a valuable and necessary accompaniment along the path of awakening. And that, in fact, it points to the sustaining happiness of a heart, a mind, that's no longer run by the energies of greed, clinging, fear, judgment, anger, and confusion that in fact it points to the sustaining happiness and ease of a heart, a mind that's liberated, that's awakened. As a child, this natural state of an undistracted mind, as we could call it, is something that young Siddhartha 
wandered into, so to say. The world outside going on just as it is. Thoughts and feelings arising and changing, coming and going. No different in those moments than anything else in the world. Nothing to agree with, nothing to argue with, nothing to cling to, nothing to push away, and nothing to run from. And yet this natural state of an undisturbed mind isn't so easy to wander into for most of us. We often have a mind, uh, a mind that's made up. A mind that's often absolutely made up about what, how it's supposed to be, or how it isn't supposed to be, or what's good, or what's bad, or what we definitely, absolutely know is true, or isn't true. We so often have a mind made up about what we must have, or must not have in order to be happy and even in order to practice. A mind that's made up, a mind that clings to what it's made up. This is the mind that prevents us from directly, clearly and honestly meeting the moment we're in. Keeping us in conflict keeping us shut off from the vastness of possibility, keeping us shut off from the possibility of wandering into the natural state of an undisturbed mind. Essentially, this is the cause of our suffering and what prevents the heart, the mind, from calmly and peacefully connecting directly and clearly with present moment experience, both internal and external experience. And as I mentioned earlier this evening, the teachings and the practices that we've inherited from the Buddha fall into three basic currents the current of sila, the teaching and practice of virtue, the current of samadhi, the teaching and practice of concentration, and the current of vipassana, the teaching and practice of insight, wisdom. These three currents are what carried the Buddha and what carry us along and across the great and often challenging river of this life to the other side, to the side of a peaceful, easeful, awakened presence, to the side of living within the natural state of an undisturbed heart and mind. The current of samadhi the development of concentration, including uh, the states of a deeply absorbed concentration, jhana, are often experienced as beautiful. They're potentially healing and powerful states in and of themselves. And at whatever level one is able to develop a concentrated mind, 
from the perspective of the Buddha Dhamma, it's ultimately and essentially to be used towards our main goal, that of seeing the true nature of existing phenomena, parting the veil, untangling the tangle that keeps us from seeing it, so that we recognize the nature of things, recognize ultimate reality, and awaken out of the sleepy cloud of delusion. And so as awakening beings, here we are today, more than 2,500 years since this story that I've just shared about the Buddha's life took place. And thanks to Siddhartha Gautama's diligent and powerful six years of practice, here we are exploring and learning from his direct experience and the inspired and amazing clarity of his ability to pass it on to others. In closing the talk this evening, I'd like to say that it's essential that you hold your practice in the light of honesty, humility, patience, and an open-hearted interest. And hold yourself in your practice with deep kindness and patience. These wholesome and beautiful human qualities will, without a doubt, serve the blossoming of sila samadhi and panya and without a doubt are some of the basic roots and powerful forces of purity that the fruits of practice stem from and I'd like to read a poem closing it's um, another poem by Mary Oliver and it's um, it speaks about this in her a unique way, and it's a little bit unconventional. <laughs> she calls it such singing in the wild branches. It's a little bit unconventional in uh, a very. Uh, a traditional approach to practice, but I think it might be helpful and inspiring. It was spring, and finally I heard him among the first leaves. Then I saw him clutching the limb in an island of shade with his red-brown feathers all trim and neat for the new year. First I stood still and thought of nothing, then I began to listen. Then I was filled with gladness. And that's when it happened. When I seemed to float or to be myself, a wing or a tree, and I began to understand what the bird was saying. And the sands in the glass stopped for a pure white moment, while gravity sprinkled upward like rain rising 
and in fact it became difficult to tell just what it was that was singing. It was the thrush for sure, but it seemed not a single thrush, but himself and all his brothers and sisters, and all also the trees around them, as well as the gliding long-tailed clouds in the perfectly blue sky. All, all of them were singing. And of course, yes, so it seemed, so was I. Such soft and solemn and perfect music doesn't last for more than a few moments. It's one of those magical places wise people like to talk about. One of the things they say about it that is true is that once you've been there, you're there forever. Listen, everyone has a chance. It is spring. It is morning. Are there trees near you? And does your soul, your own soul, need comforting? Or your own mind, we could say, your own heart need comforting? Quick then, open the door and fly on your heavy feet. The song may already be drifting away. And let's sit silently for just a moment. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.